Hey folks, before we get started, I just want to let you know about my upcoming book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. If you're looking for a job or you think you might be looking for a job in the future and you're trying to up your mobility and meet new people and things like that, this book walks you through the whole process. Go ahead and check it out. It comes out on November 20th. It'll be on Amazon and you can find it as The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Hello, everybody, and welcome to one more episode of React Roundup. I'll be your host. I'm Lucas. And today we have the panelist Thomas Aylott with us. Hello. And our guest is Vitali Zeidman. Yeah, hello from Tel Aviv. <laughs> Hi, Vitali. Hello. Are you a React developer who builds large applications for your organization? With NX, you can build your apps in a monorepo alongside your backend code and share code between React and other frameworks. You'll also get advanced code generation and automatically configured tooling like Cypress, Jest, and Prettier to simplify your workload. You'll build higher quality apps, share more across teams, and focus less time on configuration. Visit nx.dev react to get Narwhal's free open source set of extensible dev tools. So first of all, Vitaly, let's start with your background, why you're a dev, and what you're doing today. Well, I work in a software solutions company, which is like a consultancy. It's called Weldon Software. I worked on many, many different projects. I worked with very different technologies from PHP many years ago to Knockout and Durandal and Angular, just many, many technologies. Now I work uh, with React for a long time, and I worked on some graphical uh, applications with React and Redux and many different tools. So I have a lot of experience in React performance. That's nice. Wow, you said knockout and brought knockout in memories. Jazz. Yes. <laughs> I remember when we, we were doing jQuery-based uh, applications, and when knockout appeared, it seemed like magic to me. I was like, yes. this change by itself? That's so crazy. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little bit too magical. I, I, <laughs> I got dropped into a knockout project one time, and I just, I was completely lost. I've never felt more like a noob in my life. <laughs> it's like, how do I look at the data? I really liked uh, Durandal at the time, which used knockout as far as I remember. And it was just great. We built projects in no time at, at the time. It was great. Yeah. Yeah, I think for I think the Angular one thing and the knockout, uh, I think they were great to 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 build to start building stuff, build like small applications that were doing a bunch of stuff that would take a long time to to build with the with the. Team. Yeah, they definitely but, yeah. started a great uh, trend. Yeah, but I can't say much about large applications. Then I started having nightmares. So uh, today you've been working with uh, React a lot, and we saw that you had a talk in a React meetup. We were talking about uh, React performance. So let's start with that. Like, what what would you say to someone? We we sometimes uh, read it like, "Oh, React is not performant." How do you respond to 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 such a sentence? Let's say when I tried to get into React performance issues on purpose. When I created this lecture, it was really hard. <laughs> React is very performant, unless you do certain things. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're probably going to talk about. But yep. in general, I think React is very, very fast. It's unbelievably fast, and especially on desktop. So if you are working on a React application, and the application is slow, 
So what what are you usually like the how, how do you start debugging this? Also, let's differentiate. There are two types of slow. Like you can be like the page load is slow, right? And then you can have a sluggish UI, like it's not the, the page is not responsive enough. I think I believe those are two separate issues, right? It's easy to blame React, but like how do you know what it is? How do you narrow down like what kind of aspect of slow is this? What flavor of slow? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think it's all about the tools that you use. And we have great tools in in Chrome and Firefox and our browsers. And also we have uh, the great React uh, DevTools extension where you can just record the timeline of exactly what happened. No matter if you talk about your initial page load or uh, just recording a timeline of a certain uh, operation, just record it and start breaking it down into smaller parts. The moment you understand what takes a long time, you can probably see what's the problem. The way you asked the question is actually the right way, because I just wanted to say that, as Donald Knut said, we should forget about small efficiencies 97% of the time. Premature optimization is the root of all evil. (laughs) And that's very, very important. I think people are obsessed with performance, but... In my opinion, you should only be concerned about it once it manifests itself. Unless you work with this known 3%. So, for example, if you create a list of 10,000 items, you should probably use a virtualized list in the first place. Probably. You wait for <laughs> performance issues to manifest themselves. That's like an example of the 3% where you should start with performance in your mind. Mm-hmm. But in other cases, I saw people spend a lot, a lot of time on performance even before they see anything that slows mm-hmm. them down, like write code that is less readable, less flexible, mm-hmm. without an actual reason. Yeah. So how do you differentiate, and how do you, how do you explain the difference between premature optimization and just good architecture? I think it's a question of experience. It's really hard to quantify. And that's where a team leader can shine or a technical leader. That's where all these small trade-offs come into play. It's a really hard thing to do. For me, it's really important to work with, to be data-driven, which means um, we need to set goals. We need to assign scores to things. And just to be scientific about the whole uh, performance field. Yeah. Yeah, like measuring and then optimizing after you measure versus, you know, when coming up with an architecture, thinking through, okay, what, you know, what are the potential sources of slow and how can we architect around them Mm -hmm. versus I've seen a lot of times people just kind of sprinkle magical, faster code all over their, their code because it's just like, oh, if I use this weird, you know, math operation trick instead of math dot, you know, seal it's faster because the internet told me it was back in 1996. Yeah, and this only runs like once in your whole application, so it doesn't <laughs> right. make any, any, yeah. You say I, four yeah, microseconds, good job. Yeah, I tend to think about, uh, first of all, is performance a business requirement? I think it's not premature optimization if performance is a business requirement. If you are on a company about page, probably performance is not (laughs) 
a requirement. But if you are on a SEO page, you know, a, a page that, that can actually the about page can be important for SEO. Like if I your about that. page is taking 60 seconds to load, you might want to look into it. <laughs> <laughs> well, like if you have a product page in an e-commerce, right? So right. here we, we are a real estate, uh, we have a real estate website. We have our listings, right? The building space. So these pages, since we want them to be search engine optimized, uh, performance is is part of the requirements of the page. So it's something you need to, to think about a little bit careful from the beginning. But even then, I believe we should be careful with premature optimization because early optimization does, uh, like premature, I think, usually has like a negative connotation on purpose, which is good. Like you want, you want to think about uh, performance early, but you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot doing like weird stuff that are not important. So yeah. I believe that the early optimization means measuring, maybe in the beginning. I think performance is a feature. Mm-hmm. We should treat it like any other feature. Perfect. There's a lot of studies to suggest that it's a great feature, right? For example, a study that Google made found out that Pinterest increased their search engine traffic and signups by 15%. And all they did for this is to reduce the perceived wait times by 40%. Oh, wow. They didn't even improve the performance itself, at least in this number, uh, to achieve the 15%. They only improved how the, their users perceive performance. So this study is a great study to pass to your product managers, especially if you want to mm-hmm. work on performance and they just yeah. tell you, no, we want more features. Nice. It's important to recognize that performance is a great feature. Yeah. Yeah, It's also kind of like the difference between accessibility and internationalization. You might, for business reasons, choose to just launch your product to one language only, but that's different from launching to one set of abilities. Like, we're, we're going to intentionally choose to, to make our site impossible to use if you're colorblind. It's like, well, maybe don't do that. <laughs> but when you're designing something... You don't need to internationalize it at you know day one, but maybe avoid painting yourself into a corner and making it either impossible or or very very difficult to internationalize later. So it's kind of like that with performance. Like you can do things right now of like okay, these are the things that we can speed up later, and we know we'll we'll measure and we'll optimize. Yeah. But this is the basic architecture that we're using that we're gonna not make it impossible to make things fast. Mm-hmm. Also, it's a scale. It's not like it's either optimized or not. Like you can start with, I don't know, React divs, and then as your um, program progresses and your product is used by more people, you move to use, for example, SVGs to do something graphical. And it's more complex usually, but it's faster. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. We understand how to do with performance early on in the project. It's measure. You can't optimize what you don't measure. You need to understand your bottlenecks. So we're things are all fine. But usually in the beginning of a project, everything is good. The projects are not that large. Not many teams are contributing to it. So things are usually good. I believe that most of the performance of the big performance issues I faced on uh, working on React applications were 
with applications that I were that I was working, I don't know, for more than a year, and then multiple teams start creating their own components. Every time you come back to the application, it's a little bit different. And then when you see, you cannot type in an input box without having like a 10 millisecond delay, 100 millisecond delay after each keystroke. So seems that, bad. <laughs> yes, that's the situations I've, I've I've seen myself. It's like things are creeping and creeping and creeping, and then someone says, "Okay, React is slow." Death by a thousand cuts, kind of. Mm-hmm. From my experience, many times you have a lot of performance f- problems, or at least you feel like you have them. But the moment you create the timeline of what exactly happened when you click this checkbox, you can trace it down. And usually you can see what's exactly the problem. Nice. And sometimes it's the same problem for many, many things. For example, if you use Redux, and you have some problem with your state that makes the whole application re-render the moment you click this checkbox, you should probably try to see how to prevent all these re-renders. So what's a good technique to even be aware of where things are starting to creep up? Like tools, tech tips, techniques, like what should we be doing all along? I think uh, developers use very strong computers they kind of see their application through pink glasses, you know. The audience that you work for, the people who actually use your product, some of them use uh, low-tier or mid-tier phones. Mm. So a good way to start with is to understand that performance is important and we need our QA or whoever is responsible for uh, checking the application check it on slow uh, devices and see how it feels to interact with it. Later, if you really want to ensure your performance won't uh, degrade, you can have uh, some kind of automatic process that assigns a score to the performance of your website. For example, a good score is like Google Speed Insights. It measures the loading time of your application. It's actually a very, very important one. But you can also create your own scores. For example, you create an end-to-end test and check how much time it takes for the test to pass. Or you measure frames per second. Or you do all these small things to ensure that your score didn't drop between releases. That's something that uh, I really like doing. Oh, this one is interesting. Yeah, because... Yeah, I used to, to use uh, Speed Curve a lot, which I love, which is, is, is really good for page load, performance monitoring, and understand your bundles and stuff like that. They have all the really interesting metrics on the, on the client side. But measuring the runtime of uh, end-to-end tests is interesting because you can get the, the, the sluggish UI performance issues on that. Also, I have uh, this tool that I created. I don't know if you heard about it, but it's called Why Did You Render? It was previously... I was inspired by a tool that was called Why Did You Update? And Mm -hmm. I actually was one of its maintainers. But then I rebuilt the whole thing from scratch. What it lets you to do is that you add the Why Did You Render true to components. Mm -hmm. And it ensures that it doesn't render unnecessarily. Now, unnecessarily is a little complex. Mm -hmm. In general, it means that you don't have objects that are deep equal to themselves, but different. 
Like if you have like uh, an object that has like one key and you have an exactly the same object with the same key, mm-hmm. but they're different, then your component would re-render and there's no reason for this component to re-render. Mm-hmm. I usually don't use it on all my components or I mean, it's actually a bad idea. I usually put it on mm-hmm. key components, like big yeah. lists, like animation components, like on complex stuff, just to ensure that they don't suddenly re-render a lot of times without a good reason. So that's also a thing that I think can improve your performance. That's great. And I see that you you log when it's re-rendering and, and it tells the user why, like re-rendered because of props changed. There are a lot of funny patterns that people are not aware of. For example, if you have a pure component and you pass it children, mm-hmm. This component would be pure from one hand, but from the other hand, each children would usually be recreated. So all the time, yeah. You lose both of the words. Like not only your component always always tries to understand it if if it has to re-render, but also it always re-renders anyway. Yeah, this is interesting because you're adding all the pure component checks to your component, and you know they will always be false. So you're creating a bunch of calculations unnecessarily exactly. just because you heard that pure component is really cool and performing. So also that's I also found out <laughs> sometimes uh, if you talk about React performance, sometimes it's best not to use React. <laughs> sometimes it's best to use uh, other techniques. For example, I mentioned SVG, like canvases. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I meant canvases. So like, if you have a canvas and you want to do something graphical, you probably should use canvas, not React for this. Mm-hmm. Or there's a lot of manipulations you can do on HTMLs directly, but it's only for very, very complex projects. Usually I think it's not the solution. Yeah, I believe that sometimes you have like this really intricate dashboards that even though you're using React in your application, people use like D3 inside their components and things like that to manipulate directly in a more efficient way, right? Yeah. Also, I found out that third-party libraries might slow your application considerably. How so? If you have many analytic applications, Mm -hmm. if you have all these applications that show uh, models and show Mm -hmm. like walkthroughs, and there's a lot of applications that you don't control directly, a lot of scripts that run parallel to your one, and sometimes they listen to your mouse, sometimes they do heavy operations in the background, and it's very, very annoying to developers that code that some other department forced you to put there, slows down your own application, you know? <laughs> yeah, I call it the Google Tag Manage nightmare. The, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you put the Google Tag Manager tag on your application, and then like the company just starts putting plugins and third-party applications on your app, and then you have no idea what's happening because it's not... It's only in production. So this is almost like an organizational issue. Like how do you, because on one hand, it's, it's good that most of these tags are, are being added via Tag Manager and we don't need to have like devs, dev time to add and remove those things. But on the other hand, it can really make your website unusable. And if milliseconds become money in the end, that, that means that you may be losing a bunch of there, it because of the, yeah. 
your work as a developer is to show it to the business and product departments. Yeah, the impact. Just show them, give them this slider. There is this slider on the internet where you just drag it. I think it's Google's. It uses the results of Google's uh, study where you just mm. slide the slider and you see how much money you lose for every second your website uh, loads. <laughs> oh, I want that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a nice one. Just give it to a product manager or to your CTO, I don't know. Where do you want to set this slider? How much money do you want to be losing per second? Your choice. <laughs> Let us know. Yeah. We could run analytics on each each tag added in Google Tag Manager and put a and put a price tag on it, and then yeah, I've heard people that do this. In, uh, I, I don't know if it's true or not. If it's like internet tales, people who did calculations of how much this meeting is co- uh, costs with a salary estimation of everyone that is invited to the meeting, and then people like think three times before scheduling one because it's like, oh my God, yeah, it was not that important to to, to cost that much. Uh, yeah, it's so, a trade-off between how much money it costs to make the meeting and how much money does it cost to not yeah. have it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Work on so, other things, maybe not in sync with each other. So that's it. So maybe we could we could do something similar to, to performance. Okay, we can add this feature we can add this tag, but it's gonna cost to the company. Is it is it the value it's bringing? That's really interesting. Super tricky. I don't I don't even know like how to do that, but it's food for thought. I wanted to ask you guys, mm-hmm. uh, what right. do you feel about pure components? How do you decide what to make pure and what not? Ooh, good one, Mr. Thomas. Tricky one, huh? For that, I, I generally don't make anything pure until it makes sense to like just build something as naively as possible you know using decent architecture and and whatever and then if things are slow in reality diagnose it and use whatever is the appropriate tool you know pure is one of the million tools to use but you know, there are other techniques to use to avoid Mm-hmm. re-rendering. But I mean, it's definitely not something to just sprinkle willy-nilly everywhere just because. Yeah, I think that if there's no children, it's a good candidate. And if all the props are simple values, it's a good candidate. But even then, sometimes I'm afraid of, of making a, comp- a component pure because I don't know about the future. Like if someone changes that component and change a prop to be an object or, or now the component accepts children, usually they do not change it back to normal component and then we create performance issue. So to be honest with you, I usually just don't create pure components at all. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. 
Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. I think also components that, that are in a high place in the hierarchy of React, like usually the upmost component is called app.js or main.js mm-hmm. or something. Oats children can be pure if you have cases where app is re-rendered or else your whole application would be re-rendered, right? Mm. Wait, so... Yeah, but so, how often are you passing in new props to your app? I mean, I guess it depends on your architecture. Yeah, it can happen. Like I saw an application where they had app and inside there's like a, a header, a subheader. A friend of mine actually just wrote an article about it. He had a header and subheader and a main, something like that. And he changed a state and passed it to both the header and the subheader whenever a scroll occurred. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he noticed that the moment he scrolls, his whole application re-renders. Yep. So that, that's an good example. Job. It's good that yeah. he noticed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not only he noticed, he also wrote an article about it. So other people would also nice. know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I made a mistake recently and I like, it was a, a complicated thing, but I ended up accidentally re-rendering the entire app by changing something like at the root of the app. And anyway, I... I figured out a, a a weird solution around it, but it's just like sometimes you know even the, even when you've been doing this for forever, we can still make stupid mistakes. Yeah. This is what you know code review is for, right? Yes. Yeah, that's why why it also is important to measure things and measure yeah. performance. Yes, that's it. Yes, but also performance sometimes has uh, if in UIs particularly, right? Sometimes things just don't feel right, even if it if there is no. So I think also that manual QA, like you're, you're building a product that is going to be used by people, right? So there, like we, unfortunately with UI, I don't think we can automate everything. There's sometimes that it just feels weird and it's not reflected in any, any numbers. So I also believe that all this a little bit of manual QA goes a long yeah. way. It takes me back to having a slow computer in the office or a slow phone just yes. to play with it. Just to, or at yeah. least you can meet your phone like Moto G or something. Moto this G is phone. good. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is actually yeah, like, really good. Like if you're doing a mo- anything mobile, you, I mean, it should be mandatory to regularly check it on a, a kind of middling Android device as you're going yes. and not as a last step. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, many people look at it like, okay, I finished the application and now let's set this mobile mode. Let, yeah, let's it's not. Yeah. It's available for mobile phones. Mobile but, first, this is 2019, come on. <laughs> yeah, mobile first. Even Google is mobile first now. They index your website on mobile first. Pretty much everybody, look at your, your metrics. Look at who's actually using your thing. Chances are it's probably going to be mostly mobile. Yes, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. So another source of React performance issues, maybe like one year ago when the context, when the new context was released and a bunch of people stopped using Redux and start using the context directly. And 
probably today everyone values a lot the work of the React Redux library because there's so many edge cases. And using the context directly led to so many unwanted renderings that we didn't have before when using React Redux Connect. Yeah. So, yeah, I caught myself in that trap a little uh, for a couple of times. There's a lot to learn. Like when when you're using a library that kind of, you know, takes all those issues away from you, you don't have to learn about the problem space as much. But that's why I always recommend everybody, you know, take some time in your spare time to rebuild, you know, to reinvent the wheel. It forces you to learn the problem space of wheels and wha- how to appreciate <laughs> what we use, you know, maybe don't ship the the rando thing you reinvented, but I've rebuilt React from the ground up, like way back when, before it was like publicly released. I was just like, because I loved it, but I was like, wait, I'm not sure about some of these choices. So I like rebuilt it from scratch in my own way to kind of develop firsthand experience and empathy for the problem space. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, like if you're trying to replace something like, well, we don't need re- Redux. We can just replace that with, you know, and then crap out some solution in, in half an hour. It's like, how do you know what you even did, right? I yeah. just want to remind that uh, Redux had a serious uh, issue in React Redux 6. Yes. It was much slower than the other versions and they solved it in the end. And now it's very, very fast, by the way. So that's why I also advise startups and smaller companies to use uh, ready tools and not reinvent the wheel. I mean, not in production. You can reinvent <laughs> right. it to, as you, as you said, understand how it works. But yeah. don't spend your time rewriting things. Just rely on the great community that works day and night on solving to solve bugs for you. Yeah, stand on the shoulders of giants. Don't compete by biting at the ankles of the giants. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but this is a but this is a trade off, right? Sometimes we want to stand on the on the shoulder of giants. We want to 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 reuse what has what was already built. But on the other hand, I believe that when we have so many abstractions and so many dependencies, it's a little bit of the fence paradox of safe. Like it seems that we are. It seems that we are really well because we, we needed to build so we did not need to build a lot of things. But quickly we start to have problems because not all of these uh, libraries are React or React Redux. Yeah. Right. So if we're if we're if we're using like a bunch of small libraries that already did this to us, a bunch of them will not be updated. A bunch of them are not being maintained, not all of them has the same quality. So I also think that. This is the, the trade-off. We need to understand also like, okay, so let's curate our dependencies well. Because as you said, sometimes a, a dependency can be the source of a performance death of your application, right? Yeah, so, yeah you're, you're reminding me this tooltip library that slowed down all the clicks <laughs> in the application. No matter where or why you click, this tooltip, it didn't even appear or we had no clue that that's the reason for it. And also, it wasn't like a React Redux issue. It had nothing to do with React. It was just a listener on all clicks in the application, and it was a oh, very, great. very slow one. It was really hard to debug. So yeah, so sometimes uh, sometimes that's what can get you into yes. trouble, for sure. 
Yes, I would say that on the Node and JavaScript world, this probably a bigger problem today of excess of dependencies that clash, that ended up clashing with each other. Yeah. I mean, you make so, it easier to do something, people do it more. I mean, now that we can actually build, bring dependencies into JavaScript for the first time ever, yeah, I we're like, seeing, let's do yeah. it a bunch. I remember seeing a talk years ago of this, uh, I don't remember his name. He's a really smart uh, dev. He used to work for Uber and he created the Mithril, which was a small framework. And he had this talk, which was NPM driven development. So he would create, instead of creating like a, a file as a, as a module in your application, he would publish to NPM. <laughs> and then import, like require it in the main file and would create, like in the process of oh creating God. one application would create like a hundred, hundreds of, of small modules. And just, and I remember watching that and I was like, this is probably the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Because like we came from like, I don't know, Java style or pasting a static, like a jQuery to a static folder Right, so having NPM was was amazing, but today, like, I can feel the pain of using that 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 many, right? Yeah, Substack does does a really good job of like really carefully, precisely encapsulating concepts into tiny little micro modules. But mm-hmm. chances are, who, listener, whoever whoever's listening to this, you're not Substack <laughs> <laughs> or Sindri Sindri Sohius, right? I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's another dev that has like 100,000, 500,000 yeah. billions of, of packages and most of them are pretty good. But yeah, we're not them. <laughs> right, I'm definitely not <laughs> Substack. Like, this is interesting. I am not so responsible. I just went through my GitHub and, and archived all my old projects that I, I haven't touched in years. It was sad too because there was some good stuff on there that I've completely oh, abandoned ten years ago. <laughs> the cemetery of ideas. Yeah, I've realized who I am in my life. Like it's a lot of work to really maintain an open source project. It's it's a huge responsibility for the long term, and I used to take it lightly because it's just so easy to like. Oh, here's a great idea. Let me just throw it up and. And then, you know, you get some GitHub issues, you'll like close one and then you'll look like 20 of them. I'm like, oh, good grief. I don't have time for this. <laughs> like, sorry, guys, you should probably use something else. I'm sorry. That's why many of them are maintained by bigger companies or by companies right. in general. Like we have uh, in my company in Weldon Software, we have some open source libraries that we use everywhere from nice. for a lot of our projects. This is also, I believe, another subject that, is getting a lot of attention. We are understanding that this like hero style development is not, <laughs> yeah, yeah, is not sustainable, right? So it's a, it's a mix of uh, individuals and companies. So yeah, some libraries develop these interesting communities of both companies and individuals, and I think that's when they're most healthy, because yeah, sometimes it gets crazy, like people burn out. Yeah. Some people say that the, the the a big nightmare is when you have a successful open source library because your life is like not gonna be the same with all the the messages and all the PRs and it's, unless you find a way to monetize it. 
that's it. And but that you, that is definitely not a solved problem in the industry right now. Yes, yes, and not, not, not a solved problem. It's basically hope Facebook hires you and then lets <laughs> you keep working on it. That's that's the monetization strategy for the JavaScript oh, ecosystem. There are all these foundations, right? Yes. And donations, I don't know. Uh. <laughs> I think about those people, it's just like Mozart or like Bach, the, the, the composers, right? They have this, in Portuguese, we call mecenas. I don't know how to say it in English. That's a word that I really don't know. Like someone is just paying for you to, to yeah. do amazing stuff. and. But so they don't have to maintain those co- concertos for <laughs> hundreds and thousands of users over the course. It's like, they're done. Like... <laughs> Yes. I yes. have two more stories about uh, React performance. Oh, dear. Like use cases. Mm-hmm. I had a case where I had a circular life cycle, which means I put some code in a component did the update that triggered another component did update. Oh. But it wasn't infinite. So <laughs> oh, boy. It didn't feel like, you know, the browser didn't get stuck. But I just had a performance issue. It was a life. It was a circular life cycle that happened like five or six times. No, oh, yeah. Whenever something happened, five or six times, not more. So it it kind of checked where is the component using get bound client, how it's called. So mm-hmm. it just looked at the pixels and then then it moved it a little bit further, and it didn't took into account rounding issues. So it was just moving and Oops. moving it until the component got to a perfect place and it just stopped. Wow. Wow, that's really interesting. How did you, first of all, recognize the issue and second of all, diagnose the problem and third, I mean, the fix? Okay, so usually it didn't manifest itself, even though it was, uh, as you understand, it was severe, but it just didn't manifest itself. So we didn't notice it until uh, it happened to a bigger component and in a certain use case, we actually saw that it slows us down and then we managed to debug it using the just the dev tools and just the regular things. Just uh, recreated this issue in lab lab conditions or yeah, and just debugged it. And then we saw that there's a problem. Also, a lot of people put heavy calculations in uh, component did update. For example, many people yeah. access the DOM in component did oh, update. Come on. Which can be a very dangerous thing to do. It's okay, actually, to access it, but only if you have a condition that wraps it. So you only occasionally access the DOM and check it because accessing the DOM is a heavy operation. You don't want to put it in any of your React life cycles. And also, sometimes you can memoize these things. Like, you can check what's the width of a component only once, usually. Unless it's a dynamic component, and then it's another problem. Nice. When I first started taking computer science classes in college, I thought programming was just a joke. In fact, I changed my major over to engineering and started doing computer engineering and chip design. Then I found Ruby, and I fell in love. I love Ruby. It was my first real programming language where I dove deep and really learned how to make software that makes a difference for other people. Since then, and the way that we got started with devchat.tv, we started a show called Ruby Rogues. It's currently in the 400s of episodes. We've talked to hundreds of people in the Ruby community about the Ruby community, about the Ruby programming language, about Rails, and about what makes good programming. 
So if you're interested in Ruby Rogues or you just want to hear a long series of experienced programmers talking about real problems, then go check out rubyrogues.com. So Vitaly, usually in the end, we do some picks of, it can be links from technology, non-technology related, anything you, you want to, to have a interesting shout out in the end of the episode. So let's start with Thomas. Do you have any picks for today? I actually do. And they're technological this time instead of, nice. you know, squishy emotional stuff <laughs> as per usual. So first of all, well, there are three GitHub repos that I think everyone should find an excuse to, to play around with. Mm. Uh, the first is uh, Face API JS. Just a dude who hacks. This is literally his GitHub handle. <laughs> he, he's wrapped up all the TensorFlow stuff, all the, the nightmarish configuration that you have to do in order to get like facial recognition APIs to work mm-hmm. in the browser and just made it like the simplest process ever. So you can just play around with facial recognition and TensorFlow oh, wow. with just a little bit of, of JavaScript knowledge. And so I played around with it. So that's where the second repo comes in. I played around with that and React Force Graph, which uses um, D3 under the hood to generate like a, a you know a nodes and noodles kind of force graph of mm-hmm. um, facial recognition results. Whoa! Um, which looks really cool, but it's still like a lot of work to make it into a useful thing. <laughs> but that's when I discovered yet another thing, which is the thing that everybody here has to check out, has to, which is React 3 Fiber. It's a React Spring uh, thing where he's taken 3JS, like the 3D, what do you call it? Uh, Framework library. Yeah, yeah. And he's made it like deeply, deeply reactified with like hook support. And it has full access to all of 3JS's capabilities in a very... React-oriented way that's engineered, like architected to have very high performance. And there are just like these insane things that you can do with it. For me, what's crazy about it is how easy and approachable it is because like I already understand the concept of React and the life cycles and the hooks and all this stuff. But 3JS is just like, I've been meaning to learn it for almost a decade now and I've never gotten around to it. Mm-hmm. I've learned so much in just like half an hour of noodling around with this than I have in years of, I'll get around to that later, kind of. So it's like, if you want to noodle around with 3D ever, I highly recommend just, you know, spend half an hour or an afternoon or a weekend just like noodling around with this and just like, give yourself a new superpower and you'll find a way, an excuse to use it in the real world later. Anyway, wow. that's it for me. Yeah, looks really cool. Yeah, nice. yeah. That's amazing. All right, so my picks for today, first of all, is a website called opendoodles.com, which is really good because it's open source, free for use illustrations. And oh, it's just cool. amazing. It's just amazing. Like you can use for your prototypes. You can use while you are, you can use to prove if you need or not professional illustrations on your projects. You can use on your open source projects. It's really good to have open source design resources. So it's just amazing. Like I have so many friends in Brazil and the money we have available in Brazil to create stuff is literally not like one 
thousand of the, the money we have here in the US, a lot of times you just need to rely on open source much more than, than, than usual. So this is, this is really amazing. The maintainer of open doodles is going to happen. So yeah, so <laughs> this is my first. And my second one is I wrote a blog post. This is a shameless plug. I wrote a blog post on my last project here uh, at Compass. Uh, we published it uh, yesterday. It's really interesting. People are, are liking it a lot because we, we went through our whole thought process of a particular engineering project, software engineering project. So we had some principles of how we would define our strategy. We had a strategy and we had a set of challenges how we solve the challenge, the new problems that, that, that arise. A lot of friends uh, that are not software related, they're like, how do you work? Do you think about things and then you code? I was like, no, it's just like a bunch of problems that keep appearing and we keep solving them. So <laughs> we have some principles and some strategies in our mind to keep in mind uh, while we're solving this problem so we're not just creating chaos, but it's mainly like, okay, so we have a problem. I would solve it. Not a problem. How we solve it, and I really like the, the the end result of this of this post. So this is my second pick. Now, Vitaly, do you have any picks for us? Yes, the episode that I did in JavaScript Jabber for O2. It's a great nice. one about SEO. I was so satisfied with this episode. I, I felt like I said so many, shared so many information with people. Nice. So, yeah, that's my pick. Yeah, the one for SEO. Yeah. Nice. I'm putting here. All right. So that's it. This is the end of our episode. See you next week. Bye-bye, everyone. Good night, everybody. Thanks, guys. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.